Well, let's hop right into today's message. I am very, very excited about today's message. And if you don't have a Bible, Bible or outline, why don't you raise your hand, let us know, and the ushers are going to bring you one so you can follow along. But also, every single one of you in your program should have an index card and a pen. I want to make sure that everybody has one. It's going to be really important. If you don't have one, you will be crying because you'll feel so left out at the end of this message. And I don't want that to happen to you. So if you don't have an index card and you need one, let our greeters know and they're going to take care of you as well. Well, last week we wrapped up our study of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. And this week we're looking at the two other places in Scripture where we encounter the Ephesian church again. The second place is in the book of Revelation. And the first place is in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We know that Paul spent three years in Ephesus establishing the church there. We know that a few years later he wrote a letter to them, which we know as the book of Ephesians. And sometime after that, but before the book of Revelation was written 30 years later, sometime after Paul writes Ephesians, he is heading to Jerusalem on what will be his final journey. His trip to Jerusalem will kick off a series of events that will end in Paul's execution and martyrdom. And on his way to Jerusalem, he passes Ephesus, he docks in Ephesus, and he calls the elders of the church together and essentially says, I want to tell you some important things before I die because you're not going to see me again. He knows what's coming. He knows what his end is. And we sort of get to listen in on that meeting And check out what Paul had to say to the Ephesian elders. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly. And from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul just starts off by reminding the Ephesian church and elders that he came to them with pure motives. He came to them with pure motives. He faced opposition from the Jewish leaders who didn't want him messing with their people. And he faced many other challenges in Ephesus. To use a sporting analogy, Paul is simply telling them, guys, remember, I left it all on the field when I was with you. I left it all on the field. Pretty sure the guy did not take a vacation at any point during those three years. He's just going nonstop. He says, I gave you everything I have. I poured myself into your church to get it off the ground. Verse 22, he goes on, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. And he's speaking about his own spirit. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's what's interesting. Just as as a point in scripture, the Holy Spirit never tells Paul to go to Jerusalem. Holy Spirit or the Lord never tells him to go to Jerusalem. 
Paul has it set in his mind because he is still desperately aching to see his fellow Jews come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's this desire for his own countrymen which drives him back to Jerusalem. And even though God didn't tell him to do it, we actually see the Holy Spirit saying, Paul, this is what's waiting for you in Jerusalem. This is what's waiting for you. The Holy Spirit's actually warning him, but Paul feels bound in his spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit, it's his spirit. He feels this conviction But God still uses that. God still honors that. God still does a work through that. But just a little point of interest. And the other thing we notice is that Paul cannot seem to imagine a more glorious ending to his life than going out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He basically says, I'm going to Jerusalem because I want to end big. He says, I can't think of a better way to end my life than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. I want to finish well. And that Paul takes that mindset into this final trip of his life. In verse 25, he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. This is a crucial verse. You might want to underline in your Bibles, the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. So what Paul is telling them is he says, I've gone out of my way to teach you the whole counsel of God, and now you're equipped to live effectively for Christ. He's basically saying, you know everything that you need to know. You're not at the place where you need more knowledge. You know everything you need to know. Now it's up to you to take it to heart and apply it and live it out. So what is the whole counsel of God? You could put this on your outlines. To put it simply, it's the complete truth of Scripture. It's the complete truth of Scripture. Paul didn't bend the Scriptures to his own agenda. And here's how you do that when when you want to bend the Scriptures to your own agenda. You pick a topic that you want to talk about. And then you look up key words in the Bible and pull verses out of context to support what you want to say. And that's failing to teach the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't leave out the difficult or controversial parts. That's what it means to teach the whole counsel of God. It means to not say, hey, we're going to teach you the book of Ephesians. Oh, man, that's going to create a problem. Let's just skip that and move on. Paul says, I taught you everything. The tough stuff, the controversial stuff, the things that are hard to grasp. I gave it all to you, the whole counsel of God. And that's why we study verse by verse as we go through books of the Bible. Rather than letting me set the agenda, it lets Jesus set the agenda. And this is a key verse for our church. And I want you to know that this is always our goal to the best of our ability to teach the whole counsel of God. And there are Sundays where something comes up and I'm like, oh, there's going to be somebody who's never going to come back because we're talking about this. But it's crucial, I believe, that we teach the whole counsel of God that Jesus gets to set the agenda, and he set the agenda through his word. And that's why we teach verse by verse. Verse 28, continuing, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. And and by perverse, he doesn't necessarily mean sexually. He just means twisted, distorted things. To draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch 
And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul saying, guys, I told you the truth and I told you cling to this truth. And he told them that with tears because he says, I know when I leave, Satan is going to be sending people into your church. He says among you. He doesn't say outside people that you have to go protest against. He said they're going to come in among you and start spreading lies and start distorting the truth and start distorting scripture. So Paul pleaded with them to the point of tears saying, please cling to the word of God and know the truth. Know the truth. The Ephesian church was a church that grew up fairly quickly because they wanted to understand God. You always find in major cities in the world that are kind of centers of culture in the world, there's a certain high-mindedness that comes from there being a huge educated community. There's a hunger for knowledge In that way, this is just one more way that Vancouver is a lot like Ephesus, a lot like Ephesus. I lived close to Miami. We lived about an hour north of Miami for seven years. Center of culture, not a center of intellectual culture, okay? Not a center of intellectual culture. A lot of plastic surgeons, but not a center of intellectual culture. Moving here, even for us, coming back again, you find that there is just this hunger for knowledge here. There's a hunger even for the topic of apologetics, more than I've ever seen anywhere else in the world. Even believers have this hunger because the same um, ferociousness that they apply to studying secular topics when they become believers, they want to study their faith in the same way. We live in a city very, very much like Ephesus. So when Paul writes the letter of Ephesians, we find that the language he uses, the concepts he uses are pretty high-minded. He's expounding on the most profound truths about who Jesus is and, and what it means to know him. It's written very differently from, say, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians, he actually says, Paul, in all his tact, I could not write to you as mature men. Great opening line to warm up the crowd, right? I'm going to dumb this down for you idiots because you're not very mature. Classic Paul. And he has to tell them really, really basic stuff like, you know what would be good as a next step in your faith? If you guys stopped sleeping with prostitutes. That would be like a great next step in your walk with Jesus. So he has to dumb it down a whole lot for the Corinthians. But the Ephesians grew in their understanding of their faith much faster than the Corinthians did. And so because of that, Paul understands that Satan is going to attack them that way. He's going to go after the intellectual angle. He's going to send in false teachers, strange teachers with strange teachings to try and say things to people and appeal to their intellect. Because there's a certain amount of the intellect that is just rooted in ego and pride. And so instead of going to the word of God, what Satan says is he says, you don't need to go to the word of God. Just think about it in your mind. Just process it all in your own mind. Don't go to the word of God. You're smart. Just process this and think about it for yourself. Read writers who don't go to the word of God, but just talk about their own opinion. Paul says, just stick to the word. Stick to the word. Stick to the word. Cling to it. Verse 32, Paul says, so now, brethren, I commend you, which he's like saying, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I'm not going to be with you again in this life, but you have the word of God. That's enough. This is able to grow you up in your faith. This is able to build you up and sustain you. Just cling to this. Treasure it. Verse 33, he says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. 
Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So a couple of things here is remember that in Ephesus, we talked about this right at the beginning, they were a city that were crazy about gods. Crazy about gods. There's probably not even a person in Ephesus who could name all the different gods that they worshipped. And we found when we were looking at Acts 19 that making little idols to Diana, the goddess, was a highly profitable business. So the gods business was very, very profitable. So, you know, we think that televangelists who have like gold-plated toilet seats give Christianity a, a bad name. Coming up with a new religion would have been a surefire way to become rich and wealthy in the city of Ephesus. I mean, if you could get a religion off the ground, you could, you could do anything. I mean, there are religions who do temple prostitution that have convinced people it's worship to go and prostitute yourself and then give the income to the church. Uh, I mean, if you can get something like that going, like, you're set, right? So when Paul comes in proclaiming a new God, there is going to be a certain amount of skepticism and probably a lot of people assuming this is just a guy looking to get rich. So Paul says, here's what I did. I came in. I didn't ask for a dime. Worked for myself. Provided for myself. He probably didn't even stay with anyone in the city because he didn't want anyone to be able to say you're just doing this for the money so Paul went above and beyond so keep in mind Paul and everyone traveling with him were either single divorced or they had left their families at home so they're single men so they have the time and the schedule and availability that you have when you're single when you're not married and so they use that to their advantage to gain them quicker access and get past some skepticism in people's lives you find in other places that Paul goes when he goes to Philippi he stays in a really nice house stays in Lydia's house when he goes to other cities he receives financial support from people because maybe that's a city where there's not the same stigma so what we see in Paul is we see Paul adjusting his approach on a sensitive issue depending on where he's going to minister if you're wondering about me my great testimony is my 1996 Ford Windstar champagne gold 250,000 kilometers on it if you would ever like to accuse me of trying to get rich we can go for a drive and you shall receive a testimony. So Paul is adjusting his approach. So it's, and, I, and I just say this because there's always going to be like one person anytime you do this who's going to be like, see, see, pastors shouldn't be paid. And I just want to be real honest. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's going to a place where there's skepticism, so he changes his approach. There's multiple places in other scripture where Paul is financially supported by people, but he had nobody to ask when he went to Ephesus, and he knew that if he did, he was just going to be putting up a wall with people. So he goes above and beyond, and he's to be commended for that. In verse 36, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this is Paul's final encounter with the Ephesian elders. And you see this great love between them. And the essence of what Paul says is he says, listen, Satan's going to try and destroy what we've started here in the name of Jesus. So know what you believe. Cling to the word of God. Those are the words of Jesus Christ, and you'll be okay. That's what he says. 
The final appearance in Scripture of the Ephesian church is in the book of Revelation. So it's the last book in your Bibles. You can flip over to Revelation chapter 2. Really interesting because in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have Jesus himself writing seven letters. And each of these letters is directed towards one of the early churches that existed during the first hundred years of the church after the ascension of Christ. Back when there was essentially only one church in each city, just as the book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, which I always thought must have been so great for the church leadership because there's like no pressure. They're like, oh, you don't like the music? Just go to the other church. Oh, wait, there isn't one. I'll see you on Sunday. So it must have been so easy for them, right? I mean, what else are they going to do? So here's what's amazing about these seven letters that Jesus writes. In perfect order, every single one of these letters lays out a portion of church history between the ascension of Christ, when Christ leaves the earth, and the end of time. This is called the church age. And every single one of these letters covers a portion of history in perfect chronological order. And it's amazing because if they were in any other order, it wouldn't work. But so each of these letters is addressed to an actual church that existed, but it also has a prophetic application to a period of time between when Jesus left the earth and pretty much the time that we're living in right now. So we're going to look at the literal meaning because this is a letter, the letter to the Ephesian church is written to the church in Ephesus probably about 30 years after Paul established it there. So we're getting to go back, check in, and see what, what happened. What happened? Did they follow Paul's encouragements? Sometime we're going to have a chance to look at the prophetic application, but not today. It's really, really fascinating. So Jesus starts, and we're going to go chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus starts with a commendation for the church, a praise for the church. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. He says, I know your works, I know your labor. He says, you you guys get it. You're working for the kingdom of God. You're laying down your lives for the kingdom of God. You've made him your priority. You're actively serving the Lord. Good job. He says, I know your patience, your perseverance. You've, you've stuck with it. You didn't quit just a couple of years after Paul left. You've stuck with it. Excellent. He says, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So put this on your outline. Their their theology was impeccable. Their theology was impeccable. When someone would come in and say, I have a fresh revelation from the Lord, they would say, well, let's see what the word of God says. And if they were wrong, they'd call them up in front of the church, expose them and say, you got two choices, repent or leave, pick one. They handled their business. They didn't tolerate it. They didn't fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, he's saying we should worship Satan, but we need to have grace. They didn't do that. They just stuck to the word of God, got those guys out of the church because Paul had said in Ephesians, listen, there's going to be these winds of doctrine coming through the church. People are going to try and get you into all kinds of weird stuff. We still see this today, you know, churches where you see stuff like, put your cash on the, uh, on the altar and then we're going to dance on top of it. I mean, just wacky stuff like this still happens. And here's what you know. Whenever you see that, people are not reading their Bibles. They're not reading their Bibles. But they did. The Ephesian church did. They stuck with it. 
And God commended them for it. They were faithful to cling to Scripture. So they've really excelled at walking out their faith. They've excelled at doing the things that Paul instructed them to do in the back half of his letter. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. They're walking out their faith effectively. Now after giving a commendation, Jesus gives a correction. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And it's worth underlining, you have left your first love. Jesus says, this is what I've got against you. You've forgotten all about the first three chapters of Ephesians. Remember, we've been saying week after week, you got two halves in Ephesians. The back half are all about how to live out your faith. But the front half is all about how much Jesus loves us, what he's done for us, what we have in him, why it's so wonderful to be accepted by Jesus. And you've got to understand chapter 3 because if you do chapters 4, 5, and 6 without chapters 1 through 3, it's just religion. You're just doing a series of actions. It's not rooted in a revelation of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is what I have against you. You've forgotten all about the love. They've got all the motion, but none of the emotion. They've got action without passion. Action without passion. The Ephesians are walking the walk, but they've forgotten why they're even walking that way. The best analogy I can give is a husband who comes home from work with flowers for his wife, and the wife goes, oh, thank you. What are these for? And he says, well, it's the third Thursday of the month, and the third Thursday of the month is flower day. Now, his action is commendable. It's good. No one's ever going to say it's bad that you bring your wife flowers. The discipline of doing it is good. He even cares so much about this that he's put it in his calendar to make sure he doesn't forget to do it. But what's happened, somewhere in there, the love that drove those actions has died out. And now it's just something he does because it's the right thing to do. And it's in the schedule. And it's what good husbands do. Genuinely deep relationships are very very rare. I don't know if you've noticed this, but most of our relationships in life are task-oriented. They're task-oriented. I'm talking about friendships we have because we're trying to accomplish something together. Friends we have, but they're friends because we work together. Or, or maybe even here at church, we share relationships because we're trying to build a church together. We're trying to establish a community of faith, and we're trying to accomplish some of the t- same tasks together. We're trying to build strong marriages and a Christ-centered church and lives that are focused on Christ. And, and even in this, we, sh- we share a task, but in marriage it even becomes quickly task-oriented because suddenly the task of raising kids comes in. The task of building a life together and getting your finances in order and saving for a home and building a home and decorating a home and maybe building a business together. And so there's this huge problem that comes into marriage is when the kids move out the house because suddenly it's revealed that the relationship was based on the task of raising the kids together and you had a relationship that was built on a task rather than built on intimacy the intimacy got lost somewhere in a task driven relationship you stand shoulder to shoulder in an intimacy based relationship you stand face to face it's so easy to become co-workers rather than real friends without even realizing it. 
the Ephesians got so busy with the task of guarding their theology, knowing the Bible inside and out and, and building a godly church that they forgot the reason behind all those things, which is loving Jesus, knowing Jesus. And as believers, it's very easy for the same thing to happen to us. Without even realizing it, we can go from studying his word to know him more to studying his word just to know more about him, right? To be able to have deeper conversations about him, the finer points of theology about him. And somewhere in there, the love gets lost. We're going through the motions of the Christian life. There's no fire or crisis, but there's there's no real relationship. And we find ourselves only close to Jesus when there's a task we need to accomplish or a crisis we need to ride out or some obstacle we need to overcome. And that's not really a real relationship. The Ephesians had become good, moral, godly people who lived up to the standard of God's word, but they'd lost their passion. And this happens to all of us. I don't know if you realize this, but there's something in all of us that just draws us towards a works-based faith. Even though we start overwhelmed by the grace and love of Jesus, there's something in us that just wants to break it down to a series of actions like we can earn our faith and check the boxes. We we always have to fight that. There's just something in us that wants to control our faith rather than rejoice in the fact that Jesus has done it all and we just benefit from that. It happens to all of us that we we become spiritually dry and the fire dies out. But fortunately, Jesus gives us the remedy. In verse five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. You wanna underline from where. Remember from where you've fallen. He says, think back to where you used to be in your relationship with Christ. He says, think back to when it was passionate, when it was fresh, when there was a fire. And then he says, repent and do the first works. To repent simply means to change your mind. And so Jesus is saying, change your mind about how you're living. Change your mind about having a dead faith and being okay with that. And when he says the first works, he's saying, go back and do the things that you used to do when you were passionate. He says, think back to when you were passionate. Think back to when there was a fire in our relationship. He's talking about the things we did when we were first saved. When our passion for Jesus was higher. And he says, think back and think about the things you were doing. Think about the things you were doing. Think about what's different now to what you were doing then. I don't know what it was like for you, but, but in those seasons for me, it's like the presence of God is like an addiction. I just want to connect with him throughout the day. I find myself sneaking moments with Jesus to talk with him or listen to a worship song in the car or on my phone just because I just want a moment with him. I'm hungry for his word. I just want to read it. I don't want to read it to sound smart. I want to read it because I want a touch from Jesus. I'm just hungry for him. I can't wait to get to church because there's music and worship and other people who love Jesus, and I'm, I'm just hungry for that. I'm hungry for that. Jesus says, think back and understand there is a connection between the things you were doing then and the passion you had. We tend to get it backwards and we tend to say, I'm passionate, so I'm doing these things. Jesus says, says, listen, you were doing the things that create passion. That's what was going on. And so the trap we get in is saying, I'm I'm just going to stay where I'm at and wait for the passion to come back. And it never will. It never will. That's why Jesus says, go back and do those things. 
act like you did when you were passionate and the fire will come back. That's the solution. All these sorts of things. The things you do when you're in love. Jesus says, go and do those. This is huge because like I said, we will all go through dry seasons spiritually. All of us, all of us will. But this also reveals that Jesus is serious about wanting a passionate and intimate relationship with us. He doesn't want a series of actions. He doesn't want us to just be good people. He doesn't say what I really want is moral people who check the boxes. He says, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your affection. And we know that because this is what he says next. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless you repent. Unless you repent. Now Jesus actually explains this earlier in scripture. He explains this. He tells us in Revelation chapter 1, I believe I actually got my notes out of order, I apologize. He tells us in Revelation chapter 1, he says that the lampstand represents the church. Represents the churches. There's seven lampstands, one lampstand for each church, for each letter he writes. And he says that in Revelation chapter 1. So when Jesus is saying this, he isn't saying I'm going to take away your salvation. He's literally saying I'll shut down your church if you don't change. I'll shut down your church if you don't change. If you don't stop playing games. Now, now this is a big deal because remember, this is not a church where they're doing anything wacky. Their theology is impeccable. But Jesus' threat is change your ways or I'll shut down your church. I'll shut down your church. Because Jesus feels that strongly about us, his kids, not playing games. He's not into playing games. He says, I'll shut your church down. Doesn't matter if you have perfect theology, the most eloquent teachings, you check all the boxes. He says, if you got no passion for me, if you don't love me, I'm not interested. I'm not looking for that. I don't want it. Shut it down. And man, haven't we seen this happen in our own lifetime across places like Europe? Even some of the oldest mainline denominations in North America are free-falling in decline because the passion is gone. Passion is gone. Man, they've worked out their theology. they got books about it. They have figured out exactly how they feel a service should go, follow an exact format and pattern, but there's no passion. Jesus says, I'll shut your church down. And you say, well, what if the church stays open? Well, that's not God keeping it open. God left a long time ago, and you just got a building with a bunch of people in it. But Jesus says, I'll shut down your church. And here's the incredible thing about the church in Ephesus. He did. He did shut them down in the end. Church shut down. And there were individuals who heeded this call for repentance, but collectively as a church, they, they never did. They never did. And you know what I found? Is I found that when you become incredibly passionate about theology and doctrine, which is a good thing, but you lose the passion, your pride just gets built up as your intellect gets built up. And here's what I find in those churches. Little things that are little tells that you can just spot. 
nobody wants to worship passionately or expressively in those churches because it's, it's beneath me. It's beneath me to look needy. You could do an altar call and the altar would be empty. Why? It's beneath me. I don't want to look needy. I got this thing figured out, man. You have some little telltale signs that begin to creep in. And even here in Vancouver, man, apologetics is a great thing. But I've met a lot of people who could irrefutably prove the existence of God through debate who have no passion for Jesus. Nothing. It is just dead. What's the point of that? Who wants that? Hey, all right, you convinced me God is real, but apparently following him isn't all that great. You don't seem that excited or happy or full of joy. So, so what? What are you offering me? The chance to be right? It's not all that appealing. And this happens so, so easily. And you see this issue every time you ask a church, what's your church about? Like, what are you guys all about? And you get an answer like, we are about teaching accurate, reformed theology and defending it. Or you hear an answer like, we are all about feeding the hungry. That's what our church is all about, meeting the, the lowest among us. Or, or even like our church is all about building strong families. I mean, like no one's going to stand up at any of those things and say, how dare you, blasphemy. No, no one's going to do that. Feed the hungry, I've never heard such. No one's going to do that. But here's the truth. Jesus would say, those are all good things. But I created you to know me. I created the church that you would know me and that others would know me and see me. That's why I created this thing. And you're missing the point if you miss that. Anything other than knowing God, knowing Christ, you've missed it. You've missed it. And you should run away from it. Because what it means is that we haven't looked at the word and said, what does Jesus want from his church? We've said, man, what do we think the church should be? We've had a vision casting session and had a brainstorming meeting and come up with our idea when Jesus already laid out the agenda. He said, know me, and all of that stuff will flow out of you naturally. Know me, and you'll build a strong family. Know know me, and you'll know the word. Know me, and and you'll be driven to help those less fortunate than yourselves. Know me. Know me. The only acceptable answer for the purpose of the church existing is knowing Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. And in case I missed it, the lampstand represents the Ephesian church as the fill-in there. But it's all about knowing Jesus. And so if you're wondering what the mission is of our church, it might sound oversimple, oversimplified, but, but I believe in it with all my heart. The reason we exist as a church is to reveal Jesus and see him revealed. That's what we want. We want to see him revealed through scripture, revealed as we worship, revealed as we have communion, revealed through our lives to the people around us. That's what we want. That's the purpose of our church. Verse six, he goes on and he says, but this you have, and he gives him another commendation, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And, and really, who doesn't, right? I mean, <laughs> now here's the thing. We don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were. There are a lot of theories, but they, but they really are just that. They're theories. There's not one unified, agreed on thing by all theologians. But here's what we do know. We know that Nicolaitan is a compound word. It's made up of two words. It's made up of the word nikos, which means to conquest or utterly vanquish. 
And laos, which means a people, the, the laity, the congregation, the people of the church. So the compound meaning is basically to rule over the laity. That's what the name Nicolaitan means. So we would deduce that these are basically people who started coming in and said, you know, this Christianity thing is a great way to rule over people. I mean, they really buy this stuff. And if we can somehow uh, make it so that we have special access to God and they don't, then we can really control people. There's great potential here. And if you can read between the lines, I could just go off about this, but I'm not going to do that because we don't have time. But here's what it is. He's talking about a group of people who say things like, you know, I, I'm the pastor. These are the church leaders, and, and we have special access to God. So you guys really shouldn't make any major decisions without consulting us. So you, you need to book a meeting before you buy a car. I need, I'm going to need to sign off on that before you buy a home. If, if you're thinking about dating someone, we're, we're going to need to approve that. You know, and there are cults and churches that are like that, and they do it in the name of honor, right? They do it in the name of honor. And Jesus literally says, he says, I I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. And he says, and you guys hated that too. Good job. But we, we, we kind of know a little bit about history, don't we? And we know that there would be some very, very huge movements in the name of Christianity that would essentially build their religion around that entire idea so that they could control an enormous amount of people. And here's what our position is on the role of pastors and church leaders. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.24. It's on your outlines. He says, but that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so you'll be full of joy for it's by your own faith that you stand firm. So Paul says, listen, we're, we're talking to you about how to live a life of faith, not so that we can dominate you, but so that you can have your own faith because it's your own faith that saves you. It's not my faith that saves you. For your joy, we want to work together. So we're not here to use Christianity as a way to control anybody. We're, we're here to grow together in our faith and each fulfill our unique callings and, and God's given me the privilege and the honor of being able to, to teach his word and that's just my role as we work together to build our own faith and become stronger in our knowledge of Christ. So here is the big question. Here's the big question. Am I in love with Jesus? Am I in love with Jesus? Am I standing face to face with Jesus? Or am I standing shoulder to shoulder with him? Do I know him? Or do I merely know about him? Just to understand this, if there's no love, no passion in your relationship with Jesus, there's no point going through any of the motions, any of the actions. It's dead. It's dead. Jesus wants a relationship built on affection and intimacy and love. He's not looking for perfect behavior. He's looking for a relationship. And so if you need to, if you need to repent today, if you need to change your mind about being okay, being stuck in a passionless relationship with Jesus, then do that. Then do that. But make a plan. Make a plan. Go back and think about the things you did when you were passionate for Christ and start doing them again. 
This is just going to be a, maybe an emotionally charged moment for you if you don't define what you're going to do differently. If you don't say, I'm, I'm going to get up tomorrow and talk to God. I'm just going to read Ephesians or read a chapter of Ephesians. I'm just going to start doing those things that I used to do when I was hungry for God. And I'm going to do them in faith, believing that the fire is going to come back. and God's going to meet me. I want to be desperate for God like I was before. Repent and make a real plan to do something differently today, tomorrow. And this is what we're going to do. This is, this is just an exercise in affection for Jesus. On that index card, on just the front or just the back, I want each of us to write a thank you note to Jesus for our salvation specifically. And this is not like, dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. Heaven's more awesome than hell. Cheers. I'm asking you to, to really engage your heart and your mind and say, man, if you knew that somebody could take this card and put it in the hands of Jesus, what would you put on there? What would you say to him? What would you write to Jesus to just say thank you? You're going to have some time to do that. I'm going to go up. We're going to play one song, but we're just going to stay seated for the first song. The lights are going to be on. You can write. You can pray. And when you're done writing, just read it back as your prayer to Jesus. Your salvation was because Jesus died for you and he died for me. And this is a time to just stop and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Just read your card over and over and allow the Holy Spirit to bring fire back to those affections for Jesus. Take communion. Pray. Talk to God. This is a moment just between you and him.